listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're continuing our uh, series on what does God say about, and today we're talking about socialism and Marxism. And I just want to say up front as you're turning, um, this message is not a capitalist message, okay? This message is not necessarily a United States of America message. Uh, Before I am an American, before I am a conservative, above all, I'm a Christian. My allegiance is to Jesus and Jesus alone. There's not a country, there's not a politician, there's not an ideology that saved me from hell. It was one man named Jesus, and it was because of his blood and his sacrifice that I'm here today. So my goal today is not to necessarily go fully out there and go, this is what this says about this, and to make you believe one thing or another. My approach today is it's here, and how are we going to respond as the church? Because the reality is, is the church is responsible for a lot of things. And a lot of things that are going wrong, even in our country, is because the church has not necessarily done its job. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this, and I am going to point out some things, some facts about Marxism and about socialism that I do believe are totally against the Word of God. Uh, But above all, what will we do? How will we respond as believers? I want to read the first part of Daniel 3, and I want to say this about Daniel 3. This is not an exhaustive um, message about Daniel chapter 3. There are some, some principles in Daniel chapter 3 that you see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I believe we as believers and how we need to handle things and the way we need to stand for things. And it's these principles in this passage that, that I want to point out today. So just understand we're not doing a, a full expository message out of Daniel chapter 3. But this is what it says, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar The king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurer, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Then a herald cried aloud to you, It is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, you need to underline all the people there, heard the sound of the horn, 
the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music. Listen to this. All people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And I'm going to stop right there for a minute. Does that not sound like cancel culture to you? He set it up and he said, everybody that hears the sound of these instruments, everybody that hears that, all nations, all languages, everybody, when you hear that, you bow down. And it says right there that all the people, all the people, and this included Jews. This included people who had served Jehovah that God had brought out of Exodus. He had brought out of Egypt through the Exodus, and he brought them out, and even they bowed down. All but three. And those three stood. And we'll talk about how they responded in a minute. But the question is, how, how did we get here? And this is what I want to talk about. So for a few minutes, you're going to get hit with a lot of facts. And again, this is a really high view. 40,000 feet won't touch this very quick overview I'm going to give you uh, of Marxism and who Karl Marx was and all that. But I just want to say, how did we get here? Because here's the thing. And when I say secular left, I'm not calling out party lines here. I'm calling out secular left, the liberal mindset of an ideology, Okay. So you, in seminary, you learn when it, when it comes to Scripture, you have two schools of thought. You have liberal thought and you have conservative thought. We believe the conservative thought on the Bible, that it is inerrant, it is infallible, and everything it said was breathed by God, and it is without error. Liberal thought wants to find everything wrong with the Bible, that really none of it's true is where they want to go. And so when we talk about these things, when I talk about liberal, I want you to know that we're talking about this ideology that, that is just taking storm, taking this nation by storm. And so how do we get here? Because here's what they believe. They don't believe America can be fixed. They believe that what we need to do is to destroy it, and in the process, a new America will emerge that will be free of poverty and racism and all these things that they have this idea that, will, that, that they can make work. The goal even from Karl Marx, was a utopian society where everyone would be equal. And those who resist their ideas, here's the thing, is can't, we talk about cancel culture, and I just can't see with my glasses on for some reason. Um, those who resist their ideas are usually bullied or shamed until they admit that they are wrong and they embrace their idea of future. To merely question their viewpoints you are denounced as being hateful, you're denounced as being a bigot, and ultimately a racist whenever we denounce certain viewpoints. So we who are Christians are told that if we want to be good citizens and be known as good citizens, we should keep our views to ourselves. Not just on the idea of socialism, but everything that we've talked about over the last few weeks. If you want to be a good Christian, you keep your mouth shut about abortion. If you want to be known as a good citizen, keep your mouth shut about gender. And that's what they tell us, and that's the thing. That's, a, that's the wave that is being pushed. And here's what's happened. Many Christians are standing like deer in headlights. They don't know which way to go. They don't know, do I speak out? Do I stand? What do I say? So normally what happens is we back ourselves into a corner and we go silent. 
And then the trend just continues to move on because the people of God do not stand up for the things of God. And I'm not saying stand up for the things of your opinions and your thoughts. I'm talking about standing on the word of God in all of this. So there's this powerful cultural system that has fed this river of political correctness. And it's curbing free speech. It's attacking uh, the, the Christian. It has hostility toward a Christian. It's growing racial conflict. And ultimately, it's empowering the government. And what's leading these attacks on the traditional American Judeo-Christian values? It's Marxism. And it's been around a long time. So I want to talk to you just a little bit. The first thing is the devastation of Marxism. So who was Karl Marx? We hear the name a lot, but until you really start digging in, this, this was a messed up individual. Thing is, is he wasn't born that way. He was born to a Jewish family. His dad was a Jewish lawyer. His mom was a, a Jewish lady. He had rabbinical ties. But when he was six years old, his dad decided to leave the Jewish faith and became Lutheran because he wanted to be able to, get, to be more successful in being an attorney, and he was limited in the Jewish culture to be that. So Karl Marx became known as this philosopher and economist, which I think is really weird that he would even be tagged an economist. That's another story. Uh, political theorist. He is known as the father of communism. He was an avowed atheist who argued, and this is where I really want to focus on who he was, argued that religion was a mere illusion. And replacement for religion was his grand plan. That was what he wanted to do, especially Christianity. For him, Christianity was used by the wealthy to suppress the working class. And one of his most famous quotes, this is what he says, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and protest against real suffering. Religion is the, high, the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, the soul of the soulless condition, and this is his famous line, it is the opium of people. He believed that religion was as a painkiller that caused people to have an illusion on what the world was all about. So he went on to say the first prerequisite of the happiness of people is the abolition of religion. So he wanted to do away with what we're doing today as a whole. He taught religion, especially Christianity, was used to impose control over the lower class by telling them to remain content as they awaited a false millennial hope. So he told everybody that, hey, it's a suppression to stay content. He says that's what we taught. So you see what he did? He took Scripture, because what does Philippians 4 says? That whatever state I'm in, I know how to be a base, I know how to abound, I know how to have little, I know how to have a lot, but whatever state I'm in, be content. Why? Because there's something better coming. And he took that passage and he twisted it. That's why we settled the first message being that we stand on biblical authority. So if that's the case, if he could get God out of the picture then he could define himself what was good and whatever fit his utopian vision. He ultimately believed that, man, that God didn't create man, that man made God in his image, yet ultimately there was no God. And at his funeral, his good friend and collaborator Frederick Engels said this about Marx. 
He said, Marx was before all else a revolutionist. His real life mission, his real mission in life was to contribute in one way or another to overthrow of capitalist society and the state institutions which it had brought into being, to contribute to the liberation of the modern pro proletariat, which he was the first to make conscious of its own position and its needs, conscious of the condition of its emancipation. Fighting was his element, and he fought with passion, tenacity, and a success that few could rival. That's who Karl Marx was. What is Marxism? Well, Marxism was drawn up by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and it was the idea of a classless society. And I know I'm giving you a lot of history lesson, but just stay with me. In simple terms, it's a political and economic theory where a society has no classes. Every person within the society works for a common good, and class struggle is theoretically gone. It's actually the false reality of a utopian society that really ends in a dystopian society. He believed that the wealthy held the power and that the working class was under their control and that they never had any ability to ever be successful or happy. As a result of the revolution, Marx predicted that private ownership of the means of production would be replaced by collective ownership, first under socialism and then under communism, in the final stage of human development, social classes and class struggle will no longer exist. This is where it gets really bad. Over 100 million people have been murdered and lost their lives because of Marxism. People like Stalin and Hitler are some of the prime examples of what this looks like. And the most devastating part is that Karl Marx is still ruling from the grave today. Today, what we face is called more of a cultural Marxism. We're not fighting battles on the battlefield over Marxism anymore. It's the idea of people coming in and gradually winning over the hearts and the minds of the people. It draws people because of the benefits. It promises hope. It promises change. It promises income, equality, racial harmony, and justice based on secular values and not on Judeo-Christian morality. While it promises this utopian future, it directly tries to capture and destroy certain foundational pillars, such as society, politics, education, religion, and family. One of his biggest, biggest problems that he wanted to get rid of was family. He just wanted to destroy the family. So they try to point out the wounds from the history. Now, hopefully all you understand this is what's going on. They try to point out wounds from the history and play on people's hurts and emotions so they can draw them in and destroy them. From the Communist Confession of Faith, and it's out there. You can go online and print it off. This is one of their confessions of faith. Every individual strives to be happy. But the happiness of every individual is inseparable for the happiness of all. So there's this collective classless society where supposedly everybody is going to love one another, everybody's going to have lots of money, and everybody's going to run around happy. But can I tell you, we live in a fallen world. And even if all of those things were to happen, it would still not bring joy. It would not bring security because of the humanity is sinful. So number two, the deception of socialism. The first thing it does is it opposes personal liberty. Congress, according to our First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof 
or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's our First Amendment. What has happened in the last one and a half years? We've seen censorship. We've seen them trying to control churches meeting. You ask John MacArthur. We've watched it all over the United States. We've seen them attack assemblies. We've seen them attack people who are wanting to gather together. And the latest thing is you can no longer petition or protest the government without being investigated as a domestic terrorist. Just ask the parents in Virginia. Whenever they stood up against critical race theory and they were investigated by the FBI's domestic terrorist. It's all over the all over the web. It's all you can research it. And the thing is, is this is in this nation that I really thought these things would never happen in my lifetime. But here's the ultimate opposing of liberty is they don't want the church to come together. Can we just be honest? Really, all, this, all of this attacks Christianity. All of it attacks religion because they don't want the church to come together because history proves that when the church comes together, there's power in the name of Jesus. And when we gather as a body and ever we worship Jesus, it doesn't matter what they try to take away. We stand free. So they want to take away our ability to come together. They want to take away our ability to assemble and to worship. But I love what Galatians 5.1 says, and I understand that Galatians is talking about the law. But listen to me, Galatians 5.1 says, stand fast. Man, I was reading this in my office today and got really excited. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Can I just tell you in here this morning, it doesn't matter if they win. It doesn't matter if they take away my, my voice. It doesn't matter if they take away my guns. It doesn't really matter because there's a freedom that they cannot take away that is given to me by a man named Jesus who saved my soul from hell. And they can lock me up. They can throw away the key. They can duct tape my mouth and put a sword in my throat. But they cannot and will not ever be able to strip away the freedom that I have in Christ Jesus. That's why we read about people all over the world who are standing and dying in the name of Jesus because the best they can do is help me enter into his presence. So the thing is, is they want to oppose it, but what they don't know is that I'm already free because who the Son sets free is free indeed. So we should stand on the fact that we are free. But it also disrupts the family. 1 Timothy 5, 8, very plain. I know this is one of those verses some people like to tear out of the Bible. But it's there. If anyone does not provide for his own and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And what happens is, is these, these programs give the government power. But the Bible is very clear that the family is ordained by God, and God is deeply concerned for the well-being of the family. The Bible is also very clear that we are responsible for the members of our own family. 
And so what happens is socialism deceives families into believing that due to that assistance, they no longer have a responsibility to care for their family members. I don't have to take care of them. They'll do it. I don't have to provide for them because somebody else will. But the Bible says that if we don't do it, that we're worse, the King James says, as an infidel. And so Karl Marx believed that the, <laughs> the families based on a natural Judeo-Christian value actually bred inequality and fed on greed and a systematic oppression. So the Bible says, just take care of who's yours. <laughs> If his vision was going to be realized, and he had to dismantle the family. And John Piper says this, we give social programs too much credit and the importance of family and faith too little. It's a shame whenever the church believes more in the government than it does the king. But yet we still fall to that. So whenever those things happen, we empower the government. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice but when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And as these things increase, so does the power of the government. And so people begin to depend on somebody else to take care of them instead of them taking care of themselves or their family. And so what happens is, is the family becomes irrelevant and the motivation to work is potentially eroded, which what puts the power in the hand of the government. The crutch that was meant to be temporary becomes a permanent means of survival. French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville said this, it's not an endless expanding list of rights. The right to education, the right to health care, the right to food and housing, that's not freedom, that's dependency. Those aren't rights, those are rations of slavery, hay and barn for a human cattle. So it empowers people that are not supposed to be in power over our lives. If I'm not mistaken, they're supposed to serve us, not own us. But then ultimately it replaces the church. Acts 2 says this, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And what Marx did is he took that verse... And he twisted that verse and said, even Christians, even Jesus was a socialist. But if you read this, they were not forced to do it. They did it out of love. Because when you read the account of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter told them, as long as it was yours, it was okay. Nobody told you to sell it. But then you sold it and kept back some and lied. If they had not assaulted Ananias and Sapphira, would not have had to lie or been in their, you know, they lied. They wouldn't have died. Because as long as it was theirs, nobody was forcing them to give it up. What it means is every knee was being met by other believers. Even if they had to sell things that, that was theirs in order to help people who was in need. That sounds good, right? until it hits your front door. It sounds good to the first century church, but what about the 21st century church? And the deception is to take and twist what they were doing. But I'm going to say this right here, and I'm okay if you email me Monday, but it's a sad day 
when the church has allowed the government to fulfill its basic responsibility of taking care of one another. And I know that doesn't sound popular, but I want to tell you something. If the church did its part, the government wouldn't have to step in. And I understand that that doesn't sit well. But God never called the government to feed your mom and daddy. God never called the government for us to have to have people in this body go to a social program in order to get food or their light bill paid. That falls on the responsibility of the church. And I'm okay if you get mad at me. But I just want to tell you something. We have failed as a body of believers throughout history and throughout the days we're living in that we should take care of our people. And so they've taken, and what they've done is they've replaced the church with government programs. So there's two things we can do here. We can, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the pressure of the culture. One is formalism. If all we do is show up to church on Sunday mornings, and if all we do is, is give a check to the church budget, if all we do is show up whenever uh, we're asked to, and that's the only time we show up in the lives of people, that's formalism. And formalism is not played out in every day of your life. It's played out only when it's convenient for you. And if we fall into formalism, we, we crush, we fall under the pressure. And then another thing is fear. If we're scared, if we're fearful that, oh, they may come and put me in jail, then we're never going to step forward. And so we have to go above formalism and above fear, and we're either going to do one or two things, Warren, and I'm just going to speak specifically to us today, we're either going to retreat from the mission that God has called us to, or we're going to risk it all for the mission that he's called us to. We're either going to run in fear, we're going to run because we like our comfort more than we love our Lord, or either we're going to go all in and risk it for him. And that is exactly, exactly what happened in Daniel chapter 3. So what's the disposition of the Christian? What is our response to what's going on in the world? What's our response to what's going on in this nation? What's our response to what's going on in our front yard? And, and this is it. Verse 8. Well, I already read that, right? No, I didn't. Verse 8. Therefore, at the time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews... They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews, don't you like those tattletales? whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due to, to uh, regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, 
psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. Good. Isn't that what the culture wants you to do? But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And I, I just, I'm like, Nebuchadnezzar, you stuck your foot in your mouth, brother. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I love what these guys say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from our, your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. So the first thing we have to do as believers is we have to be anchored in the truth. We must be anchored in the truth of God's word and be willing to remind one another of that truth as it should be played out in our lives. Because here's what happened. Whenever he demanded that the three boys uh, bow down, they answered back in such an amazing way. They were anchored in who their God was. He, they said, we do not have to answer you in this matter for one thing, king. Second thing is, is our God is able to deliver us Oh, yeah, and if he doesn't, then we're still not going to serve you. That is somebody who knows what they believe and lives it out. They are anchored in truth. What does Jesus tell us? Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And what's so amazing is in the days we're living in, we find many, many evangelical Christians who have walked away from the truth to follow a woke version of popular culture. And we wonder why so many people are in bondage. Paul Washer says this, we must not adopt the world's view and then tweak it to make it Christian. We must, not draw a line. we must draw a line in the sand and stand firm in the radical teachings of Christ and his gospel. We must preach the truth and be the examples of the truth we preach. If we're going to preach love, we got to love. If we're going to preach forgiveness, we got to forgive. If we're going to preach gospel, we need to live the gospel. Just the bottom line. So what do we do? We reject popular culture. If you're anchored into truth, you can reject the popular culture. Courage armed with truth is our calling. It's our weapon. How do I defend all of the things that we've been preaching about over the last few weeks? It is because I'm anchored in the truth. So when the, when, whenever they come at you with the lies, you are anchored in the truth and you're able to reject the popular culture. Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't rage war on Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't pull out a sword and try to stab him. They didn't blow up his office. You know what they did? They said, King, we don't even have to answer you in this matter because our God, the one that you said couldn't deliver us, he's more than able to help us. They rejected what everybody else did around them because they knew that their God was the God that could deliver them, and that is standing on truth. A Shadrach and Meshach and go, hey, even if he doesn't, we still won't bow. Here's the thing. You and I may not ever face death by furnace. I don't think we will. 
or maybe not even by terrorists here in the United States, but will we have the courage to stand in the face of cancel culture? Will we be willing to go to the fire praising Jesus for being worthy to suffer for his name? I was reading just this week, there was a group of young people in Cairo, Egypt, who uh, terrorists had come through and killed a lot of Christians. And you know what they did? They didn't retreat. They didn't run from them. They went out and made T-shirts and marched the streets where the terrorists were standing that said, martyred by request. You know what they did? They stood. They're like, hey, if that's the best you got, then you're not going to scare us. We're not going to run and hide in caves. We're not going to run and hide. We're going to stand face to face with you. And even if it means we're dying, then we're going to die for a great cause, and his name is Jesus. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who understood Marxism and communism very well, this is what he said. Who stands firm? Only the one whom the final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all these when in faith and soul allegiance to God is called to obedience and responsible action. The responsible person, person whose life will be nothing but an answer to God's question and call. So if you try to reason it, you'll never stand. But if you trust the one who saves you, you'll stand. For most Christians in America, let's be honest, it's been pretty easy to this point. <laughs> I mean, we, and I'm thankful that God has allowed me to be raised where I was raised and in the family I was raised in, so we've had it pretty easy. But here's the thing. We're soft. So be honest. Man, we, we're, we're seeing by the, by the hundreds Evangelical pastors and leaders and Christian artists fold under the ideology of this cancel culture, and some of them are even embracing it. And a Christian missionary to Kenya said this, The time of revealing is at hand. Many who have been claiming to build the kingdom of God were just storing bricks for the Tower of Babel. So what are you doing today? Are you building the kingdom of God or when the pressure comes, has it really just been about us? We can't afford to just continue to keep our heads in the sand. We can't live in our bubbles that we structured in our subcultures within the church. We're called to be on the front line. And we are called to stand whenever things are not right. But how do we stand? We're gospel-driven. That means living the gospel towards people. You're moving towards people. You're always moving towards people with the gospel. And I believe that in the church, and I, I can say this because I'm a pastor and I've been raised in church my whole life, and I've heard this my whole life, I believe one of the biggest problems that we face in the church is we present the gospel as a means of salvation, but we don't present the gospel as a means of sustenance to live. We want people to make a, a, a choice. We want people to be saved, but we forget to tell them that the gospel is not the first step. The gospel is the journey. And so what happens is, is people come, they get saved, and they're never told how to live. They're never told what it means to be a mature Christian. They're never told what it means to stand. So whenever pressure comes on them, what do they do? They retreat. And everything that we do should not only be that people are saved, but that people mature 
and are able to help reproduce disciples. So we have to be gospel driven. The three Hebrew boys, notice what they did. Their response was they didn't blow up at Nebuchadnezzar. They respected him. They said, we don't agree with you, and we're not going to bow to you, but the thing we're going to do is we're going to stand on the truth of our Jehovah God, and we believe what he says. So then their reaction was, hey, if you're going to kill us, if you're going to throw us in the fire, that's fine. And you know the rest of the story. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. It was so hot that the men that threw them in burned up. Nebuchadnezzar was shocked. He looked in. He said, didn't we throw three men in the fire, but yet there's a fourth one walking around? And oh, look, it just happens to be the Son of God. He is here. He is protecting these guys. And so what does he do? Because of the way they responded and because of the way they reacted, he takes them out of the furnace and he makes a decree that says, if anyone speaks against, now this is a harsh decree, I get it, Against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're just going to burn them, into, cut them into pieces, and burn them. That's a little harsh. I get it. But how we respond to the things that we've been preaching, how we respond to the things that we disagree with, will absolutely, absolutely result in one or two ways. Either we're going to reflect Christ, or we're going to absolutely dim our lights. So how do we do that? We do it because we're gospel-driven. Thing is, is if you really look at this, their lives caused Nebuchadnezzar to doubt his unbelief. Wouldn't it be amazing that if we as believers in this room today lived our lives in such a way that people who didn't believe doubted their own unbelief because they saw it in us? Because they, they, they looked at us and they said, man, I know this is rough. I know this is against everything that you believe, but why are you not mad? Why are you not angry? Why are you so, so still loving us? And even then, they begin to reject their own unbelief. We've been called as ministers of reconciliation, and that means loving people. That means loving people that are unlovable. That means loving people like yourself. This means loving people regardless. Being gospel-driven requires going to the other side. You remember Mark chapter 5? Whenever Jesus went to the other side of the lake, and he went over there where the demon-possessed man was, and they were like, why are we going over here? And he says, I have to go. And he went over there, and this man runs up to him, and Jesus, uh, he, he cast the demons out of the man. He went to the other side. He didn't avoid the man. He went to the man. What about when he says, I must need go through Samaria? He is, and, and they were like, what are you thinking, man? Do you not know that we don't go through Samaria? He says, I do. And we're going. And he went and he met that lady at the well in one of the most beautiful evangelical evangelism stories in the Bible. And then what about the Good Samaritan? Right? I mean... The pastor went around the guy. He avoided him. He did. Church members, man, they, we can't touch him. He's, man, he's been beat up. If we go that way, we're going to be robbed too. And we're just going to leave him. What did the good Samaritan do? He went to him. Right? And if you're really going to follow God close, sometimes it's going to lead you to the dirty places, the despised places, and even the dangerous places. 
But are we willing to be gospel-driven and do that? So here's what you're going to do. You're going to embrace your comfort or you're going to embrace his cross. But I like to think about Jesus who came down in the mess of humanity and was willing to go to ultimate lengths to seek and to save that which was lost, which is everybody sitting in this room today, and restore people back to his kingdom. So what happens is God forms gospel people to be gospel-driven for gospel mission. So how do we respond? We respond with the gospel. We stand on truth, we serve in love, and we share with compassion. We don't demonize people, we reach people. And it's easy sometimes as the church to demonize people that don't look like us. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to reach. So what's the answer to it? Be the church. It's real simple. And I believe that one of the most important questions that we have to ask in this room today, am I of this world or the next world? According to Scripture, if you're saved, you're just a sojourner. You're a pilgrim in this land. You're just passing through. And while you're passing through, you're going to reflect the glory of God. You're going to share the gospel of Christ. And you're going to try to lead as many people to the kingdom of God as you can through him. What if it was said about us in the 21st century as it was said in the 2nd century? Just listen to this. What if we were so different in this place today? What if we were so different in every day of our lives that whenever they would go out and try to find something wrong with us, whenever they would go out and try to find a reason to hate us, that all they could do is come back and give this report. They dwell in their own countries simply as sojourners. What if we loved heaven more than we loved Somerville? What if we loved heaven more than we loved our stuff? They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, but will be restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They possess few things, yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, but in their very dishonor are glorified. And those who hate them are unable to give any reason for their hatred. This is the 2nd century from a man named Methodus to a man named, I guess, Diognetus. One was a Christian and one was a Roman guard. And that's what he said. I can't find anything wrong with them. Why? Because we don't operate in men's economy. We operate on God's. We look different. What did Jesus say? And we've been quoting this verse a lot lately. They know you're my disciple by how, the way you love one another. And the difference between the church and the difference between the culture is that we have had the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. We have had the love of God lavished on us. And we've been drawn together by his love. You know what the first century Christians were doing? They were meeting the needs by whatever means necessary. Why? Because they had experienced God's love in their lives and it permeated every aspect of their life. Think about this. One of the most grotesque things that was taking place in the first century, and this was among Jews and Romans, if you had a baby... And you didn't want that baby, whether it was because the baby was deformed 
or because the baby was born in infidelity, if the baby was just number six or seven of many kids and you just didn't want that baby, you know what you were allowed to do? You were allowed to take that baby outside the city to the dung heap and you were able to cast that child into that garbage pile without any stigma or any charge against you. You could just walk right back in the city and you could walk on through your life as if nothing happened. And nobody said a word. So there was these babies who would be devoured by dogs. They would die of the elements and all those things. But you know what happened? That group of first century Christians where the love of God was shed abroad in their hearts, you know what they started doing? They started making daily visits to the dung heap. And they started grabbing those little babies up. And they started bringing those little babies back into their cities and into their families and adopting them and raising them as their own. It was a need that needed to be met, and they did it without anybody telling them they had to. Think about that. That's why whenever Paul preaches adoption in Ephesians, man, they understood what that meant. What if today, if we were just known without anybody having to force us or tell us, like, there's a need, and we need to go f to meet that need. There's somebody that is hurting. There's somebody that is hungry. There's somebody who is broken. And maybe we need to get outside of our bubble sometimes. Maybe we need to roll up our sleeves, and maybe we need to just go get dirty. And stop living inside the subculture of the church. Their love for one another motivated them. John Piper says this in closing. This is him addressing the whole idea of a socialism. In the church, no one should go hungry. No one should be without a place to stay. No one should fail to get health care they need. No one should go without a job if it is possible for believers to help them find one, and so on. All of this should happen through the free and uncoerced help of other believers. Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, see how they love one another. What if in the days we're living in, in the midst of all the things that are happening around us in the culture, whether it be gender, whether it be marriage, whether it be adoption, whether it be Marxism, whatever it may be. What if in all of it, Warren Community Church was known for their love? What's the answer? Just be the church. Be the church to each other. Be the church to the lost. Be the church to your enemies. It doesn't matter what the cost. Be the church if their pantry's empty. Be the church if their gas tank's empty. Be the church if their light bill had been paid. Just be the church. Be the church if they've been divorced. Be the church if they're homosexual. Be the church if they made bad decisions. Be the church if they're crack addicts. Be the church. Be the church for one another sitting in this room. If somebody is in need in here, just be the church. We are 
to not just assemble together on Sundays, not just to come tonight and give out a bunch of candy. We are assembled together to be the church of the living God. That means that we believe that no power, nor death, nor hell, nor Satan, nor the enemy, nor the government, nor anybody else can ever separate us from the love of God. We believe that upon that rock, this rock, the church, he built, and the gates of hell cannot stand against us. We belong to a God that says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him and that no weapon formed against us should ever prosper and let's just be the church we got all of heaven we've got all the power that raised Jesus from the dead we got a king that's high and lifted up and sitting at the right hand of God on our behalf we have all of heaven behind us and I just simply say let's be the church right The only alternative is, is to die and let them go to hell. Who cares? I got my ticket. I prayed a prayer. So who cares about them? And I'm going to tell you something. There's going to be a lot of people in a lot of churches throughout all of history that are going to stand before God with blood on their hands because they didn't care. I just simply say, be the church. If God has saved you and God has rescued you from hell, why in the world would you not spend the rest of your life trying to rescue others? Be the church. Just be the church. And let it be said. We can't find nothing wrong with them, but they just love one another. And I know, man, I know. Let me tell you, man, I've never been burned. I've been preaching for almost 20 years, Pastor Ken, almost 50. And I'm going to speak on my behalf. These are not easy. These messages are not easy, but they're necessary. They're necessary because the church has stuck its head in the sand long enough. And it's time that we rise up. And it's time that we stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's time that we go forward in the power and authority of Jesus Christ to the world. I love what the guy says, and I promise you I'm trying to close. I can't think of his name. I heard a testimony from him, this guy that used to pull the cross all over the world. He was caught one time in the Middle East... And they were fixing to execute him. And right before his execution, they come to him and they said, is there anything that you want to say before we kill you? And in his interview, this was his words, you can't kill a dead man. He said, I died to myself a long time ago. He said, the best you can do is translate me into the presence of my Lord. And what if every day of our lives we just simply lived that way? 1997 in November. I died. The Lord 
brought me to life. I died to who I was. I died to my dreams. I died to my goals. I died to all of that. And I'm like D.L. Mooney says, man, don't, don't cry when I'm gone because I'm more alive than I ever will be. What if we just lived our lives as dead people who are alive in Christ who the best thing they can do for us is just translate us into heaven? Be the church. Simple enough. Father, we come to you today and guys, I look around the room. God, my prayer is, is that everybody in this place is already being the church. God, that in every aspect of their life, they're not compartmentalizing their walk with you, but Lord, that in everything they do, it overwhelms them. You consume them, whether it be work, whether it be family, whether it be conversations, whether it be disagreements. That God, whatever it is, God, they're gospel-driven people. And that they're meeting the needs and they're, they're seeing need and they're running to need. And the God that they're refusing that if it's people in their context of life that they will not go without. God, they'll help. Father, just in this room, God, if we'll just be the church. Father, I pray that, that even tonight, God, that this be so much bigger than a foundation Sunday and so much bigger than a trunk or treat, but Lord, we literally have an opportunity to be the church, to be gospel-driven, to go towards people, to have conversations. God, help us to turn out tonight to show up in a big way and share and serve with compassion. Stir us, Lord, to look more like you. God, help us to have the courage to stand in the face of God of wrong, in the face of the enemy. God, also give us the courage, Lord, to do it in love and in truth. God, break your people for what breaks your heart. God, all across this room in here today, Lord. God, I pray that your people will rise up and be broken because the need is so massive around us. God, we just don't show up. But God, that we turn out. God, help us today. Father, help us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Father, raise up people that are willing to walk that way with you. Father, our, my prayer is just three words. Be the church. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.